Welcome to the CIM Marketing Podcast. The contents and views expressed by individuals in the CIM Marketing Podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Welcome to the first ever CIM Live Podcast. This is the 62nd episode of the CIM Marketing Podcast, which started, was pioneered by James Farmer, who sat there at the back three years ago, um, and is the final episode of the season. We always break uh, over the summer um, holiday period and then return um, in September. So it's been three years. It's at the end of the third season. We've There's some stats, I think, possibly flash upon there at some point, which show the, the growth and the numbers we've had. It's, it's been fantastic, and we've been lucky enough to get some absolutely fantastic guests with us um, over the three years. Certainly none better than the two we've got today to answer this question is about the secret of sustainable marketing. And with us today is Emily Stevenson, who is Head of Force for Good for Innocent UK, Innocent Drinks, very big brand. She's going to be answering some interesting questions about the good, the bad and the ugly of sustainable marketing um, that she's experienced in her, her career. And Richard Cope, who's Senior Trends Consultant from Mintel. Um, looking into the nitty-gritty statistics behind sustainable marketing, what works and what doesn't, you know, what do we need to know as marketers about what we need to do to improve consumer behaviour, individual behaviour to get the biggest impact. So Emily and Richard, welcome to you this evening. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, let's start with a poll. We asked our listeners um, and CIM members, what's your brand's biggest sustainability concern and a wide range of answers um measuring and reporting got 25 percent, as you may may guess it's never never easy this one probably won't um surprise anyone it's a perennial issue with all marketing which is limited budget and resource 41 percent felt they were being restricted by budget or resource um but 17 percent said the biggest problem is not knowing where to start sustainable marketing and 17% which is another non-trivial figure said being accused of greenwashing. Emily Stevenson how have you ever experienced being accused of greenwashing? Straight in. (laughs) Um, I wanted to just explain my title before and this is not a politician's answer I will answer your question but when I say I'm head of force for good people generally look at me with weird eyes. Um, and we say force for good. Uh, the word comes from B Corp. Um, I see lots of nods here. And if you're listening, just have a Google if you don't know what B Corp is, that tries to have businesses as a force for good. It does sound like I'm out of Star Wars, so I appreciate it. I quite, I quite like that. But then our CEO is a chief squeezer, so this is a bit of the heritage that I have at Innocent. Um, but really, it encompasses um, ESG topics. So in the case of Innocent, it's nutrition, sustainability in our community. Um, community projects. Anyway, that was the intro. I will now answer your question. And yes, I have directly been involved in quite a lot of work on greenwashing. We had an ad uh, this time last year, actually, that aired. It was an ad with a singing otter. Um, It was a cartoon. The singing otter had a guitar, as I'm mimicking here, so you can imagine what a guitar is. And he sang, and quite naively, he sang, oh, together, we're going to fix up the planet. And he used those words. And those words specifically, although it was in a context of aspiration, really led the ASA to, to, to their soft, to say, actually, innocent, who do you think you are? They didn't say quite like that, but really, how are you going to fix up the planet yourself? You sell lots of plastic bottles, and you know, how can you justify this is greenwashing? So it was a really interesting one. Um, we had lots, we worked a lot, a lot with them, um, and actually on this one, we agreed to put our hand up to say, actually, we were probably quite naive for that ad. Uh, we took it down, we immediately worked with them. But what we didn't do is stop talking about it. We have a heritage, we have so much to talk about in sustainability. And I think it was a bit unfortunate that it came across with this otter who was probably being a bit too wide in his claims. What we did do straight afterwards, it's get back on the horse um, and have a new campaign, which is out at the moment, uh, which is a, a bigger project called The Big Rewild, where we really, we worked again with the ASA, uh, all the tick boxes of all that you should be doing. So I'm quite happy to say that Innocent is still, sustainability is really at the heart of what we do and how we execute it now is much more in line uh, with what is, what the principles of, of green marketing are. No, it was a, a deliberately provocative question to answer a serious issue for all marketers, which is 
the second part of this, the, the, this poll I was saying is that people don't know where to start. You start with enough to, you are doing interesting and important sustainability work. You perhaps overstretched in that area, but you went, you worked back with the ASA to find a, a solution that, that, that did work. So from that learning, you're talking to the the marketing industry generally, what is the best way of stopping out on this journey? And it's a good point because actually there's a there's a point on comms, but really within us it starts with the projects themselves and our commitments, whether it's in the areas of packaging, in the areas of climate change, in all the areas uh, that concern our business, having some targets and being, you know, understanding how you're going to meet them and, and talking about it. If you talk about it in a way that's going to resonate with your consumers, that is legal, not overstating, that's doing the right thing, then really it's not that hard. But you've probably got to start with the with the with the clay and then you and then you work with how do you Take that. The, the finding from this is that it, 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 people, it may not be that hard once you've learned to know how, but the finding from this suggests that people find it hard. You know, the, the people are making mistakes in all companies who are trying to do this stuff. They're trying to get it right. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make an impact. We'll talk about impact a little bit later on, but people are finding it hard. It's presenting to them as a challenge. And you've probably seen some mistakes when you've been it. Well... I think, um, you know, building what Emily's talking about, and there's, uh, we kind of need a new lexicon, I think, because we're all bogged down. You hear the phrase environmentally friendly yeah. all of the time, right? How, how can a product be environmentally friendly? I mean, it's obviously using resources to sort of get to that point. So I think, you know, we do need a new lexicon in terms of how we talk about things. I think some of the other mistakes I see a lot in strategies, maybe rather than specifically marketing campaigns, is I think a lot of brands... Um, are letting this become a consumer-led issue. And what I mean by that is rather than take the effort or respect their customers enough to, to educate them on what the real issues are, they're happy to go with the flow sometimes. So if I look at the amount of brands just being completely fixated on plastic-free, whether or not plastic-free might have a lower environmental footprint than the alternatives, compared with a brand like Patagonia, which I think 12 years ago now, they weren't afraid to sort of act on customer feedback and say, why, why does my Patagonia jacket arrive in a plastic bag? And they respected their customers enough to explain why. Because if they didn't use a plastic bag, that goods was going to get damaged and the, the environmental impact of that jacket being wasted is far bigger than any plastic. But not enough brands are ready to do that. So this is really interesting, is that instead of accepting consumer feedback as read, Brands have got to challenge it sometimes and say, actually, the trade-off by doing what you've just suggested is worse than doing what we're currently doing. Yes. So it's about all of these companies, they know where their footprint is, right? They know it's going to be energy rather than just pure, a narrow focus on packaging, even if we include the energy aspect of packaging. But very rarely brands are sort of having that conversation. There's, I think the low-hanging fruit is to do something which for a lot of brands might be less impactful in terms of their emissions, probably less impactful on their bottom line, and that's the easier conversation to have. So I think being brave enough to say, no, that's not the main issue. The main issue is this, and that's where we're active, and that's why we're doing it. It's going to be brand-led, not consumer-led to some degree. Emily Stevens. Which is quite interesting, because obviously we want to have our consumers at the heart. We want to make sure that what we do resonates with them. But if we take the subject of plastic just now, people uh, are going to talk about what they see, what they touch, what they feel, and that's naturally packaging. In our case, in any case, we have mapped the carbon footprint of, from, we say, from cradle to grave of our products, from the moment the bananas and oranges are grown on the trees to the moment that the packaging is disposed of in a recycling bin. Um, and actually, a lot of our emissions come from the beginning of the journey, mm. um, which is much more difficult for people to conceive. So we have done quite a lot of work to educate. Yes, there is there is a carbon footprint, there's an impact with packaging, but actually it's how it's grown, how much water you use, how you work with your farmers, what kind of lorries used to transport, how you cut the fruit. That is also really important, but it's harder for people to, to get their head around because they want to also be able to do something and they feel a bit more powerless with it. It's the beginning of the journey. Yeah. Can we just build on plastic a little bit? Because yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, um, when I did the research on Mintel, plastic pollution came out of the number three environmental concern. And sometimes colleagues from other countries sneer at that and say, don't they realise that's not that big an issue? Mm -hmm. But I think we have to think about, you know, why it's such a big issue for consumers. It's a lot of what Emily's talking about. It's the interface. It's where 
people feel engaged with the issue, where they feel they have some responsibility. And of course, it's so visual, we see it all around us. So I think the lesson, the insight really for me, is you have to make the solutions resonate in the way the problems resonate, if possible. That's the goal of And consumers just find some of those solutions a bit too esoteric to grasp. Is that the, that's the problem? And it's not a simple yes or no. You've got to be aware of all the unintended consequences of, for example, changing your packaging or having a quick solution. I often say sustainability might be green, but it's never black or white. Yeah. And people in this world want a you know, yes or no or good or bad. It's much more complex than that. And you need to have their attention for a certain number of seconds and minutes to really explain the complexity around the issues. So what's the key then? When you've got a complex sustainable marketing solution, and my, what I mean by that is one that's not immediately obvious. The plastic thing is obvious. I've got this single-use plastic. I've just chucked it away. I don't know if it's going to be recycled or not. I know I conceive that as bad. But there may be a big, there bigger issues or there's a trade-off somewhere. When you've got a complex sustainability solution that you, your tests and your data, know, you know it works, how do you sell that and communicate that to consumers in an easy way that they can understand and that's where you bring back to topics which they care about. So in, I'm going to plug in our latest uh, project, which is called The Big Rewild. The subject of rewilding is really complicated when you go into deforestation, when you talk about carbon and mapping out the carbon. However, what we know resonates with people is nature um, and, so, and local projects. We've taken, we've done lots of work working to understand, okay, what's important for people and how can we use that as a way to then communicate bigger issues that are impactful for us. Um, so we're not going to give us the detail, going to give them the detail of all our, our carbon footprint. However, protecting nature around you, and in our cases, orchards in the UK where people feel close to, you get them in through that and then you talk about more complex topics. And going even further sometimes for us, you get them in sometimes with jokes and humour and... Mm you know, a human way of talking, and then you can get to more serious because you don't want to be a depression session either. Mm. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, our data would show that people do find statistics depressing. So the old adage of selling the, selling the sizzle, not the sausage, definitely comes through. People don't want to see that. I think um, soft peddling with sustainable element is something to seriously consider because, you know, right. everyone here probably, you know, understands, you know, the kind of maxim that, you know, bot value, quality, these things are always going to come big for ethics and sustainability. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten. Uh, I think the brand that's impressed me most in a completely different sector in the last few years is Backmarket in terms of their, um, they did their freedom campaign uh, last year, which was all about, you know, not lining up like sheep by the new Apple or Samsung product, instead being an individual, doing something better with your time, by pushing the individuality button, really soft peddling the sustainability aspect. And they're doing the same thing now. You know, they're pushing the money you're going to save by getting that product and downplaying the sustainable elements. And I think that's really important as well. Uh, well, that's an interesting point there, isn't it? Because there is, you know, at the start of we were talking about a little bit about greenwashing and the sort of attendant risk, the occupational hazard, if you like, of being seen to be greenwashing, even though sometimes you're not greenwashing. You know, we, you work with brands, Richard, and you are a brand which has... Sustainability is its forefront. It's part of its, it's part of its brand. It's part of its part of its ethos. But if you're not one of those brands, if you're a brand that has never made any sustainability claims, yet you are doing good things, how do you say that without risking that you will be accused of greenwashing? And that might be a slightly convoluted question. What I'm trying to say is, if you've never if you've never had sustainability as part of your brand, how can you weave it in? to your brand without taking a risk of having to, 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 to be accused of uh, being greenwa greenwashing, even if it is authentic? I think a degree of fallibility, degree of humanity is okay. I mean, I'm going to mention a very obvious brand again, but you know, Patagonia did its Footprint Chronicles 15 years ago, talking about this is the impact of our brand, straight off being transparent about that. So we work with a lot of... Um, banks who are looking at green banking products and they're very worried about the credibility factor you know yeah are we crazy to try and launch something where people are going to laugh at that out of here because we know other parts of our business are doing that but in answer to your original question i hope so because it's these big brands which have never done anything sustainable which are the ones you know your energy companies your you know your investors they're the ones who need to embrace this and i think the thing the thing to try and achieve here is all of us in this room are probably trying to lead more responsible lifestyles right 
but we know how difficult it is. And if brands communicate it as a journey they've started on and actually don't just put it to this is the target, this is the end goal. Talk about where you are, what you've achieved. Be honest if you missed your target by 10%. I think that degree of humanity, fallibility kind of chimes with us all because, you know, we're on the same journey. So I think it can be done. Okay, it can be done. The, 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 the risk of greenwashing doesn't always have to outweigh the reward of being green. At least the... But often, as we were saying, it's about having those proof points to prove to everyone, and everyone is your consumers, your media, your stakeholders, your investors, that actually you're doing what it says on the tin. Is that the expression? Anyway, that you're actually, that you've got something to fall back on. So for me, greenwashing is having, it's saying something that is just not true or that you can't back up. If you can, and if you've got your website and the list of all the details of the actions that you're undertaking, and to your point about explaining why that target happened and why you missed it, if you've got that detail, you won't be accused of greenwashing because... It just won't be the case. But you've got to be totally on top of those numbers and make sure that you've got them absolutely right. But you've got to do that in the first place, regardless of what you communicate or not. Um, But yeah, the number of, you know, you're walking down the street. Was it the other day that was a um, a carbon neutral estate agent? And I thought, okay, I gave them the benefit of the... (laughs) They didn't have much space on that board because they also said, sold and everything that you put on an estate agent board. So I went on the website, Googled carbon neutral and the name of the... I won't mention a state agent, and there was nothing on the website to even explain to people what that carbon neutrality was about, which in itself is a great concept. But if you're not going to give those people who are interested and the journalists are going to come after you because, of course, you're an easy target and you have nothing to back it, then that's where it falls apart. Had they had their whole website and everything underpinned behind, OK, this is why we are carbon neutral, this is what it means. What does it mean for an estate agent? I don't know. What have they mapped out? How, what, but it just fell through at that point. How good... In the brands you work with, how good are brands at preparing that defence in advance, do you think? Um, it really depends. I mean, it's not great. A lot of them, I think the problem is in terms of, you know, bad practices, a lot of people, companies are are doing this because their competitors are doing it. Um, they're doing it for their image, which is a valid reason to embrace sustainability. You know, you're going to gain from that, but they're not doing it as part of a holistic approach to uh, conserve their future resources. They should be doing it to make money. And, you know, it's part of that. I mean, you know, let's take the heat off and talk about innocent. I mean, one of the worst campaigns I've seen in the last couple of years, the simple one was a Maltesers one talking about how they reduced the amount of plastic in their packaging and quantified it as being the equivalent of, I think, 28 Tyrannosaurus Rexes, which my son would have loved, but it's those kind of bullshit metrics, which are, you know, really harmful to the entire industry, what people are trying to do. And then the notorious Burger King one, where they had a low methane burger, said the emissions were down 33%. That only accounted for the last three months of the animal's life. Ignore the first 15 months of the animal's life. Right. And the small print said, available at five, these five stores, five Burger mm. King's global empire was selling this. So that, that's the worst example I've seen. Never mind the awful country and western song with cute kids dancing around, coming out of cows' bottoms and things, which, you know, it's part of it, so... The worst ones are out there. <laughs> There's a middle ground, isn't there? There are ones where people are doing something really good, but they slightly overclaim. And as soon as you overclaim, you walk, you walk into trouble. We heard of one at CIM Stummit, a famous airline who I won't name, made some sustainability claims about their uh, carbon emissions per mile when they fill their aircraft. And, and they were nearly right, but they weren't quite right. <laughs> and therefore, it allowed all these nasty journalists to come and say... That's wrong. And gave them a bad publicity where otherwise they could have got some good publicity. And rightly so. I think it's that small print that's going to become ever bigger because people are going to be interested and not just the journalists, who are all evil, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Some of us are okay. I was going to say, what are you saying about your own uh, profession? Um, But yeah, people, people want more detail and they've got more time and social media, you know, let's not talk about the elephant in the room. The fact that you are now, as a company, asked to be more transparent, uh, you have to have that small print and it has to become big print. So what do you find, Richard? I mean, you've got this sustainability barometer, which I dived into, and the thing that really grabbed me about it is that, apart from, aside from the marketing aspect of this, the impact of this can be huge if we can aggregate consumer behaviour, much less so when we aggregate individual behaviour. So if we make micro changes to the way we 
behave and you know we, we walk in stake of the car and so on and so forth we can make a marginal impact but we can't make a big impact what really hit me from the barometer was the massive difference we can make if we aggregate changes in consumer behavior yeah i think the iea said it's, it's almost 60 percent of the emissions reductions required for you know as a global society to hit net zero yeah. um, by 2050 is related you know at least indirectly to um, our behaviours or our choices and what we buy. So, you know, that, you know, we think consumer research is obviously important because of that. Um, so it's key. I mean, obviously, when we ask consumers themselves, ironically, they don't think it's their responsibility. They think it's primarily um, government's responsibility. And in the case of things like in increasing the amount of packaging gets recycled or, or uh, workers' rights, it's companies' responsibility, chiefly. Yeah, yeah they, have a, they have a big role to play. And there's a lot of gloomy stuff we see in the data, but one of the positives is... Uh, they still, the majority of consumers do feel they can have that positive impact. That, that comes through clearly in the research as well. It varies by country, but, you know, in general, the majority. But they don't tell you the wrong things to do. So to some degree, is it the consumer's responsibility or is, does the sustainability barometer indicate that, yes, we want consumers involved, we have to, but really, are we really saying it's the brand's responsibility? It's a... It's, it's definitely a combination. I mean, yes, consumers don't hold themselves that accountable, but I think what's useful is to see what consumers think are the priority issues, and sometimes they're on the money. Um, you know, they do prioritise, you know, climate change, they do prioritise air quality, and they do prioritise, you know, ocean plastic. It's an example of something that's less now. What's informative is to see what they're prioritising, ask why, and look at cases where maybe you're a company where you don't have any plastic footprint and your, your footprint is all about something else and you've got a job to do to educate them that you, the issues you're addressing are important as well. So that comes through very strongly too. When you're producing that barometer, what opportunities did you find in terms of the way that we can change as marketers to make those sort of massive impacts that you discovered were possible? I think um, one thing, you know, in, in terms of the practical side of things, to the communications, the bad news is the majority of consumers don't trust brands in terms of what they're talking about, as right. we've just covered. Uh, in terms of what would make them trust brands more, what comes through very strongly is, and this is very demanding, but, you know, they want to understand the positive or less negative impact they're having at an individual product level. They want to be able to buy a packaged good and something on there tells them, by buying this, you've done something better than, than buying this. Obviously, it's consumption, so it's always going to have an impact. But they want to understand having an impact at a product level. And they want, you know, we talked earlier about the importance of value. They want convenience. So the kind of Nutri-Score labelling we see, which is being developed um, in terms of, you know, groups like Mondra and things, they want that convenience on pack. And it, it comes down, you know, they want brands they can trust. I think ultimately what they want is not not to engage the issues, but not have to spend time scanning QR codes or things like that. They want to go into a store and say, I trust this brand. I know I don't have to uh, check it in that way. So they want that convenience factor as well. Uh, that comes through very clearly. That's really the holy grail, though, isn't it? To be able to be trusted as a brand in that way, where customers are questioning. And you've mentioned different different times of day you know if you're in a store particularly for us in the chilled juice aisle it's really getting cold so unless it's a heat wave like the moment you don't want to spend too much time so you want to know that you've got a brand that you trust you build that trust probably not in the five seconds that you're picking out your juice but over the long term over all the other communications that you do where people have a bit more time if they're scrolling their phone whilst they're on the tube or if they're reading a leaflet back at home so i think then it's back into the whole long term short term and all those marketing principles which are really true where do you build your brand where do you build your trust and where do you do your short-term activations and it's going to be a mix of both we'll be careful not to advertise on this podcast but i think it's fair to ask you Richard, for some exemplars which have managed to build up that sort of magic trust factor where people think that they're confident that they are buying sustainably from those brands. Are there any that you've been able to identify in your work? Well, not in terms of asking consumers which are the ones, um, you know, their go-to ones. We haven't asked about specific brands, but, you know, clearly there's some retailers, you know, like M&S or something, which are, you know, are you know, making this point. You know, clearly, despite the flack it gets in the media, you know, a brand like Unilever is clearly built on that. Um, and, you know, they're all good, or IKEA, they're all good evidence of brands which are sort of very mainstream. When we talk about, you know, the case of why brands should do this, the, the choice consumers are getting now in terms of being able to go for a more responsible or less impactful option is, is growing. Mm. So whenever we talk to clients about, you know, I'm convinced in the business case for doing that, we really try and um, hammer, that, hammer that home. 
it, does it does it pay? Does it pay? In the long term, it's going to pay. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, going back to you know the mistakes brands make in terms of you know what they're doing. I mean, they should, they should be doing this to make money. Might not be this year. Might not be next year. But you know, this is about securing your future supply lines. It's about getting more customers, keeping the ones you've got. It's about avoiding compliance taxes. So yeah, it does pay. I mean, that's the business case. And I think the ones, the companies who are often having all the problems are the ones who aren't doing this to make money. They're doing it to just tread water or do what their competitors are doing. That's interesting. If you're doing it for good commercial, sound commercial regions, you're more likely to succeed that way. I think for me, it's a balance. It's the balance of you know, people, planet, profit. And it sounds a bit like you're out of Miss World when you talk about these things, but it is genuinely true. And if you think of not wanting to go back to packaging, but we do get to it, you know, the plastic packaging tax, the fact that now we have to put 30% recycled content um, in our in our case, in our in all our products, we've we've had we've been doing it for years. But the point is, there is now a market value for recycled content, and therefore the circularity, uh, the circularity, and the circular economy works in this instance because there is a reason. And yes, we want to. Uh, we are advocating. We are pushing the government to have deposit return schemes because then we can get good quality recycled content, and it can the loop can loop. Um, that's a that's a strategically financially sound decision. We need to be savvy about well, it. You've hit on something really interesting there. Is that if you're if you're at the vanguard of this stuff, you can also push the regulation mm. to into your favour. And that's what brands that are doing well should perhaps be doing. Richard, go. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best examples I see of this are really kind of unsexy brands like you know right. things like british sugar you know where they've got their sugar beet factory and all the soil that comes in on the beet becomes a top seal product they sell all their waste their co2 their lime all that becomes other products it's almost a completely circular factory or the yeah. co-op bank or something i've been doing some work with buying an aspiration credit card in, uh, in the us recently which is basically just the co-op fronted by Robert Downey Jr. You know, it's just like a lot of it is in the spin. So a lot of the sort of inspirational, credible examples of you know people who are closing the loops or people who are you know doing a wholesale approach across the board often aren't particularly well marketed or they're not badly marketed, but they're not feeling the need to sort of focus on that as much. So I think a lot of inspiration can come from the ones who again under underselling it, if you like, for soft pedal. You, you did give an example of circular beer in there. Barometer, is that right? Circular beer, yeah. Um, again, this comes back to this theme of resilience being a you know key sort of economic driver for why companies should be sustainable. So there's a in, in Singapore we have um, circular beers. There's a company called New Water. It's basically just recycling um, the sewage water from Singapore, which you know newsflash probably happens with lots of things we're drinking as well. Right. But they overtly brand it in that way, putting some local provenance on it, almost mm. like you know they had a craft water. Now they're doing beers which they're celebrating are you know from that source as well and putting some yeah local provenance to it and their craft approach which we'll obviously see more of in uh, as we urbanize and more and more cities are growing their own food produce things as well. that's quite interesting isn't it the authenticity of saying you drink this beer you're drinking sewage but you're doing you're being good for the environment is that sort of honesty authentic getting down and dirty can that and be also an that's approach? quite provocative so you're gonna you know take a double look and think yeah. what and it's gonna you know prompt you into Thinking a bit more about it. Local sewage, you know. Local sewage. Oh, so it's fine, yeah. Local sewage. Your own, yeah. No, but it is. It creates, it's all a talking point, and therefore it makes it an interesting conversation, and uh, and people are going to engage with it. Is that, is that, is that, an, is that an interesting departure for brands? You know, what, sewage? Sewage? Well, <laughs> I was going to say waste. I mean, look, waste, ultimately, yeah. a lot of what we're talking about here is reusing waste, not... Yeah. Not necessarily not creating waste, because everything's going to create waste, but reusing it and using it properly. Is that an interesting approach? That if you can make waste sexy, then you're onto something. Um, I mean, I'm personally quite excited by waste. I spend a lot of time in, um, you know, I live just opposite the Wandsworth recycling plants. I've been there a couple of times. Um, and, and actually, I was just reflecting the other day that waste management systems not only aren't sexy, but... They are by nature dirty, the factories are old, it's all good. You go to new factories, we've just got a new factory and it's all beautiful and slick and there is, I can't believe there's not more that can be done in the waste systems to make it a bit more, not just sexy, but just up to scratch with the high technology that we have in, 
in, in the beginning of the chain of a product. Again, I'm talking here from the innocent point well, of view. I'm presuming it works for the circular beer, the, the sewage beer. It works. Yeah, well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of byproducts out there in food and drink. I mean, you know, what's Marmite? That's a byproduct of the brewing industry, basically, you know, and, um, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of that happening. There's a lot of it happening in beers um, as well as toast, toast ale made out of bread waste and things like that. So in food and drink, it's, it's, it's starting to happen. And I don't, you know, those kind of things people don't have an aversion to. It's all about brands finding partners for their waste. I mean, in countries like China, if you don't find a partner for your industrial waste, you're going to be in massive trouble with the government. And, you know, right. it's very, it's, it's forced closed loop, if you like. Obviously, we don't have the same society here. But yeah, I think, again, it goes back to that point. It's all about cost savings. You and know? value, you know? bringing yeah. value exactly. to to wastes. And, you know, I say, if, if there's no gold or there's no, there's no silver lying in the ocean because there's a value. How do we attribute a value to these things in our, in our society as it is? All of governments have been a bit easy on this. You, you said that you were pushing the government to, make, to, out, to introduce that value through regulation. You said, look, we're doing this. Make everybody else do it. So all government's still a little bit too softly, softly on this, do you think? Gosh, I have to be careful here. In a... <laughs> more legislation, please. More legislation in general, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah we, we, need to, we need to have... You can't have a first-mover disadvantage, which is something that's quite interesting as well. Uh, you want the level playing field. And I'll give an example of France where... Again, we're back to plastic. I do want to talk about all other topics, but um, plastics on some of the fruit and veg has been banned. And there's a study from RAP which says here in the UK that you could quite easily not have as much plastic to wrap uh, fruits like apples or pears. Uh, it's quite different for softer fruits. Um, but the point is no one retailer is going to undo that because from an efficiency point of view, it's much better. So unless you have government regulation to really put everyone on the same, that's not going to happen. I mean, let's, to stay in France on the theme of regulation, you know, it has to be bit more carrot and less stick. I think in this country, it's quite a lot of punitive stuff. You know, changing sector, we look at things, something like electric vehicles, things that's interesting in a country like France is obviously you have the Chile Jean movement because Macron did that kind of bundled fuel tax, which hit everyone at the same level. And he's now learned that instead, it's like, right, we're going to give 100 euro uh, incentive to people to lease vehicles. So, I mean, the incentive part of it, I think, from at a consumer level rather than legislation on brands, it seems to be that's really in dire need, I think. There's a lot of deterrent, there's not a lot of uh, incentives, I think. What's going to get them to do it? Well, going talking about packaging, I think I don't understand. I mean, Emily might know more about it than me, but you know, why don't we have the same kind of you know reverse vending culture and things like that in this country, which is you know really on the present in Norway or Germany and Turkey, Japan? Um, it's things like that, which is which is convenient, is visible. You're like, yeah, I'm recycling my look. Everyone, I'm doing it in public, which is uh, you know a great thing. You know, consumers love. You know, that's a low budget version of why people like driving around in Teslas. You know, there is that kind of desire to be, you know, green ego. I think um, so. I think things like that are going to tap in. But markets do have a big role to play in that in pushing governments. Yeah, pushing absolutely. Bodies to do it, and you, you, you've had some success in that area. But marketers should know that they are actually. They have agency to push mm. governments if they're marketed for big organisations. And that's the point, going back to the point at the beginning about these are the proof points, this is what you have. You have to be answering those consultations. You have to be pushing your MP to when there's going to be that debate in Parliament that they stand and they say, yes, I support this. That's all the work that needs to be done. It's not visible. You're going to have a marketing campaign about how you've influenced your MP, but you really need to have that in the background because you need to be pushing. Um, and, you know, in the government's favour, they don't have our point of view, so we need to be working in collaboration to explain how it comes to mind. We'll get to some questions from the audience shortly. We will give uh, the audience plenty of chance to ask questions. But I'm going to do that annoying journalist thing now and try and boil this down to a binary question for you, Emily, and for you as well, Richard. What are your biggest do's and don'ts in sustainable marketing, would you say? I'll start with you, Emily. Gosh, the best, biggest do is just do it. Just start somewhere. Um, don't be afraid. And I think that's what we said at the beginning. If you're authentic, if you're genuine, and if you've got those tangible proof points of what you're doing, um, then you can start talking about it. And I'm not saying millions of marketing campaign, but just being honest and genuine with stakeholders. What took me from the otter story is it doesn't matter that much if you make a mistake, if you're being authentic, because you can easily recover from a mistake. 
you shouldn't stop you doing it in the first place, presumably. Yeah, and you learn. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but you do learn from mistakes, right? And that's how we all learn, and that's how we can learn together collectively. So as long as you don't make too many mistakes, and you ex again that you're explaining where you've come from, but um, don'ts. Um, Biggest don't. Don't overclaim. I'd say. You know, you know, if you've got if you've got your cynical, think of your cynical friend in the pub who's going to laugh at you. Like, what do you want to be able to say to him? <laughs> It's that, you know, looking in the looking in the mirror test. Or sometimes we call it the, the granny test when you're the when granny test. The granny test. You know, when you're in your rocking chair, do you want to look at yourself and think, okay, I was I was as authentic as I could and I tried and I made a few mistakes, but fundamentally I was there. Or which how do you want to live your life? But then that's a probably a big even topic. You've had first second move as disadvantage here. <laughs> Emily's oh. given Sue great time. But he's had time to think. Oh, he's had time to think. He has had time to think. <laughs> I'll start with the don'ts. I think, you know, going back, don't use bullshit metrics about Tyrannosaurus rexes. You know, you use data with context. Yeah. Um, I think um, I think the crucial thing is, you know, you should be doing it to make money and succeed as part of a strategy, not just to sort of do what the competition is doing. I think the other thing is um, don't fall into the trap of thinking a sustainable and ethical product is going to sell just for those reasons. I mean, in the first barometer, we had this quote from John Lennon talking about selling peace and the peace movement, which was much ridiculed at the time. Mm -hmm. But he was making the point that, you know, we're trying to sell peace like people sell soap or soft drinks. And that, that's really true. If you've got a sustainable soap, sell it for the benefits of it being a soap first and the sustainable things third or fourth, maybe. Um, so I think, you know, remember that as well. I think, you know, um, soft pedal it perhaps. Don't think it's just going to sell that thing. And a doom, the biggest doom. Um, try and, you know, try and sort of make it part of an education process with, with customers if you can, about turning it into um, a lecture. And think about the emotional benefits, you know. You know, people want to buy something because it's going to make them feel good or it's going to make them look good or it's going to make them feel smart. You know, don't forget that. I think often with sustainable ethical things, we just think it's got that holiness to it. That's enough. It's still a product. It's still a product. Yeah. And it's not always enough on yeah. its own. Think of the emotion. Interesting. We're going to take some questions from the audience. So hopefully we've got some hands up here and a roving mic somewhere. Yep, lady in the back with dark hair. Hi. Thanks, guys. That was great. Super, super interesting. Um, my question is more so for um, Richard with the sustainability barometer and your work with brands. In your experience, is there still a big gap between what consumers say and what they do when it comes to sustainable marketing and buying sustainable products? Great About 23 percentage points, yes. Wow. Um, wow. So he likes data. <laughs> some colleagues did some... Uh, bad research a few years ago about, you know, would you agree you describe yourself as someone who tries not to damage the environment? So it's like asking someone, are you racist? You know? mm. <laughs> uh, and so something like 85% of people said, yeah, that describes me. Yeah. And then if you look at, you know, the most uh, basic or easiest thing we can do, which is supposed to benefit the environment, something like recycling, comes in around 57%, something like right. that. So you've got a massive drop off. Yeah. So it's in everything. So, you know, in the barometer, we try and avoid asking those kind of questions, which are easy to answer, try and make it more about what people do. So there is a, there is that value action gap, but it's not just, it's particularly strong in sustainability, but it's in everything. You know, if you ask people, is it important for you to lead a healthy lifestyle? They'll say, yes, look around us, clearly, no. And you know, the gap between people, did you exercise in the last week? No, goes down a lot. So it is, that that is a problem um, in research, which we, we have to try and avoid. And you know, obviously there's a moment of truth when someone purchases, as Emily was talking about, you know, that moment when you're actually purchasing, that's when it, that's when it comes to the crux. So there is that value action gap uh, that needs to be closed, but it can be closed by, you know, addressing some of the things we talked about today, you know, doing it to appeal to other ways, giving them a compelling reason to actually buy that product. Any more questions? Okay, gentlemen at the back. Hi, thanks very much, everybody. It's really interesting. Um, how important is it? Do you, how important is it? Do you think to focus on the positives of um, sustainable movements rather than negative data? Good with you, Emily. I can start. You've probably got the data. Um, really, I mean, people look. There's enough sad and difficult stories going on in the world and in people's lives. So, absolutely, bringing them those positive stories so that they can feel empowered. I always talk about the depression session, and when I give any talk, I have to 
have to balance the reality, uh, which is pretty scary with what they can do and what people can feel empowered to do. So bringing those positive stories. And again, when we think about how we either market some of our campaigns or even the work that we do at the start, the communication is really about how do you, how are you positive, making them feel good about themselves. Um, back to what you were saying. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to hit you with a specific stat, but it's certainly the majority of consumers, you know, agree that, you know, kind of challenging uh, statistics about climate change, you know, are depressing. So, you know, I think the worst kind of conceived campaign one would start off with, you know, um, glaciers collapsing with a stat about that. It's probably not a good way to start your campaign. Uh, and I think people are very familiar with that. I think, you know, with um, what we found in the barometer was that people's optim optimism levels have dipped about whether we, we're running out of time, which people were shocked by my colleagues. I go, well, what do you expect? And they've just been hit by all this data around COP26. So I think people's awareness has already gone up massively. So there's not really a need, I don't think, to grab people's attention with these uh, alarming statistics. Maybe there was five years ago. I don't think there's a need, I think, cutting to the chase of, you know, what's the benefit for you as a consumer? What's this going to make you feel uh, smarter? looking better in front of your peers, feel like you're doing a bit impactful. I think that's what needs to cut to the chase. Well, on that impact point, is there an attendant disadvantage to being negative? Is that if you're too negative, you make the consumer feel hopeless, that they're actually, they can't have an impact, that therefore it doesn't matter what they do, it doesn't matter what choices they make, it doesn't matter what brands they choose, we're all going to hell in the handcards anyway. Yeah, because, I mean, it's going to be hard to make the case that any kind of consumption is going to be good uh, or beneficial to the environment. A colleague was telling me before I came here that they're speaking to some young young potential uh, employees at a trade fair and said, how come Intel's talking about sustainability when you're basically promoting the whole concept of consumption? Why would I work for a company like you? So, you know, we're getting it, the flack as well for, you know, providing data to help people sell more stuff or sell less stuff. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's certainly a challenge. So try and keep it, keep it positive and show the impact. So, yeah, there's a lot in your barometer about impact, isn't there? They, they actually try... Yes, you, OK, you've got to close the gap between what people, the impact people think they're having and what they are having, but the fact that they think they can make an impact in the first place is presumably a very good thing. I think the reality is the impact's like to be a less damaging choice. So if you look at fashion brands like Reformation, we'll say, you know, this dress produced this much CO2 and water, which is really bad, but look at the industry standards, it's a lot better than that. So a lot of it's about that. I mean, there's one brand, another brand called in fashion called Ten Trees, and they try and sell the positive impact on, if you buy one of our T-shirts, we're going to plant ten trees. And you can see, to maybe quite uninformed people, that looks great. But, you know, in terms of the impact of that T-shirt on, you know, resources, water, etc., it's going to far outweigh the benefits of planting ten trees. So it's a thorny issue. I think that's an example of, whether it's greenwashing, I don't know, but it's certainly creating the wrong impression. It's creating the wrong impression, but is there something there, compare and contrast? Is that is that a valid approach, do you think, to compare and contrast your brand with your competitor's brand? With consumers, I think you're always better off just talking about what you do and doing it in a better way. I wouldn't want to win by, you know, ditching the others. I'd rather people were convinced about what we were doing. Uh, naturally, of course, you're aware of the market and you can't do things in isolation either. And you've got to be strategic in what you're doing. But I think, yeah, with consumers winning with what you are and then letting people copy, you know, copying is the best form of flattery is probably the way around that we do to, to lead the charge in genuinely what is, what's needed. Interesting. Any more questions? Lady at the back, the blonde hair. Uh, how do you think you're going to balance our sustainability messages when the cost of living crisis is getting worse and it grounds you in today? So if you can't afford to feed your kids today, how are you going to think further out when it will naturally, price will be almost the de facto of why you purchase? I should say the lady is looking in Richard's direction. But to mix things up, I'm going to ask Emily that first. I think it's back to the point where it has to work. It has to work financially. Yeah. Um, and one example I quite like, which was one of the unintended consequences that we found of a trial of reuse in ASDA. People were saying that, <clears throat> so reuse trials, I think everyone's familiar with them. You would, in theory, bring your own, bring your own box and then get 
pasta, weigh how much pasta you've bought and then without having to pay for the packaging. Um, and actually that enabled people to measure exactly how much pasta or coffee in the particular case they wanted. So actually it had a double effect of A, you were incentivizing them to pay less if they were bringing their own packaging, but B, they could they didn't have to buy two kilos if they didn't have enough to spend for two kilos. So that's a really specific example to say it has to work financially, otherwise especially with the cost of living crisis. But to be honest, at any point, it ain't going to work. Yeah, I mean, clearly now is not the time where people are going to start paying huge premiums for products which are positions being sustainable ethical. But I think, you know, the bigger picture around what's happening now is it's giving people a kind of early, harsh lesson of what's to come. So all those shortages we're seeing of, you know, commodities or energy, they're already happening because of uh, crop failures, because of climate change right now. So the shortages we're seeing from Ukraine things at the moment being wrapped up in something going to animal feed and things in terms of grain. That's the reality of what's going to happen with droughts anyway. So businesses are going to have to steal themselves to that. Businesses are going to have to take the hit on that in the short term and look at making things more resilient. And if you look, someone's arguing this morning about this and talking about Germany's opening up its coal mines again, you know, this is what's happening. Yeah, but at the same time, Germany's bringing forward its renewable energy target 15 years. So for businesses, it thinks the short term, they've got to be resilient and they're going to have to foot the cost for, for consumers that certainly uh, short-term pioneer alternatives uh, going forward. And the argument for return on investment, what we're seeing in the barometer is, whilst all this is happening, the desire to improve things like home energy, the desire to have electric vehicles is actually going up. It's got to be made a realistic thing, which is sold as a return on investment. And in mature markets, what we see is, in, in here, people who buy electric vehicles are all like tech heads, you know, yep. just, you know, early adopters, it's that kind of thing. People who buy them in more mature markets, it's all about very value conscious people who see that, that, that at the end of the month they've got more money left from doing that. So that's not going to happen next month. But I think the lessons coming out of this for businesses and how they position things uh, and how they operate is definitely going to lead us to that. We, my, my, well, we're coming to the end of the time, but we've got time for one more question, two more. We're going to take, we're going to take two more questions. Um, gentlemen over here in the red braces. The last part of the Chart Institute of Marketing's definition is satisfying customer requirements profitably. And uh, you shared that sustainability might be green, but it's never black and white. And I'd like to just touch on Richard's point that you need to do it to make money um, and succeed in terms of sustainability. And I was just wondering, Emily, from Innocent's point of view, from the work that they've done on sustainability, how has it helped? How would you say it's helped the organisation make money and succeed? And I was wondering, from Richard's point of view, if there is a particular example which is glowing around you need to do it to make money and succeed from a case study point of view. Couple of things first. I think the brand, the strength in the brand, because it's done and because there is, to my point before, so much data so much to, to prove everything that we've been doing since the start. I think that's a very important one for the brand and the trust uh, in Innocent. And there's something we haven't talked about too much, but employee confidence, employee satisfaction, all of that behind the scenes, you know, keeping your workforce, especially at the moment when actually the job market, you know, people can go left, right and centre. If you feel proud about where you work and if you feel that you're genuinely working for an organisation that makes a difference, at the end of the day, it's going to be about your people and making sure that your people are convinced. So I'm going to do a bit of a plug here, but I spend a lot of time educating our own workforce internally about what it means, both in their personal lives, but also in our business, so that they can then, you know, be proud, spread the words, feel confident. Um, I think it's a really important part. Building on that, yeah, when I say make money and succeed, I'm, I'm talking about encompassing things like that. I'm not just talking about making a, a premium on something you're positioning primarily as being sustainable product. It is about things like keeping your workforce happy and more productive and not having to rehire and retrain them every six months or a year. Um, it's about um, reformulating like someone like Unilever would do, using five ingredients instead of seven ingredients. That's safe. That's a cost saving right there. Whether it's an environmental saving is another debate, but it's a cost saving for um, that's what I mean when I'm talking about making money. I'm talking about making money in terms of you still being here in five or ten years rather than losing ground to your rivals. And obviously, I think some of the most fated examples of the brands which are, you know, doing this making money are premium. You know, you look at someone like, you know, most obvious examples, someone like Tesla has taken lots of hits, but, you know, is emerging and is going to inherit that whole sector. 
uh, in terms of transport, arguably. Um, and then I, I see it, you know, some of the main, some of the mainstream level, um, you know, brands like IKEA, brands like you know, Unilever is taking tips on its, you know, arc evaluation and things like that. But you know, with customers, they are succeeding, and it's being done at a very mainstream level um, and sold in quite a soft way. Again, I would say people don't feel like they're being lectured by their brands. Um, they're doing it in quite a gentle way. They're the example of it being most successful. I mean, in terms of making money, I think the easiest way I kind of deflect it when I talk to clients asking about making a premium is say, you know, this is giving, it's, it's, if you don't do this, it's giving people pretty good reason to choose someone else because they can probably increasingly have the option to choose someone else at a similar price point. They're not going to have to pay a premium for much longer. Just forget that. It will shift. So one final question, I think from the lady with the blonde hair at the back. Hello there. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about the importance of turning sort of the marketing inwards towards your employees. So um, how would you say that it's best to sort of start to educate your people um, and build that pride and build that engagement with your brand um, and sustainability? Um, I would say you start from day one, you know, when they, or probably even before day one when they're applying. But yeah, we have a whole, again, as a bit of a plug of innocent, but we have a whole um, induction program. So a whole week where they really, every single employee goes through really understanding what each department does. Open Q&As as much, open transparency, honesty, being realistic. It's just taking them on that journey, explaining to them why you've made a decision and not that one. Uh, it takes time, right? Because we could just not do any of this. But we really figure it's important to then get the long-term buy-in of, of all our employees. I think, um, so we're not doing anything as progressive as that here at the moment. I mean, what I think it comes down to is what we are trying to do here is sort of uh, have a community where we share best practices, just everyday lifestyle mm -hmm. tips. That's something I see brands doing as well. As, um, see brands extending into publishing or even online courses. There's a beauty brand in India called Ben Sestings, which has done that just to sort of help with sort of lifestyle tips. And I think they're publishing things with Penguin, I think. Um, so I think doing it at a day-to-day -day level, you know, as an employee, that's what I would look for. Yes, I'd want my company to be, you know, doing the right steps. You know, we've signed up science-based targets, you know, doing that. But it's all about how can you help me on my day-to-day? -day? My day-to-day -day in the office, how do I become more responsible in my behavior here? And sharing lifestyle tips, maybe, on how we can do it. So I think it's quite a soft approach here. I'm trying you, to pardon it. It's quite soft. You talk about science-based targets, but as a starting point, we realised that no one in our business knew what that meant. And no one in our business actually knew the real difference between net zero and carbon neutrality, which, FYI, I'm just going to explain really quickly that we talk about net zero as being, um, having the image of a tap. And reaching net zero would be to turn the tap off, uh, if you see the tap and the water coming from the tap as the emissions. And carbon neutrality we see as the sponge. And so you're always going to have a bit of water trickling through your... Um, and so just analogies like that, which we've tested with our own employees to then see how they resonate with other consumers. You can do a lot of test and learn with your own and then they feel part of the journey as well. Brilliant. Takeaway there. Use your own employees, your own people as a test bed before you try, try the ideas. Out. I mean, of course, go to Mintel for all the official of research. of. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you've got to start. <laughs> uh, well, that's... Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Emily and Richard. Uh, Emily Stevenson, the head of Force for Good at Innocent UK. Richard Cope, senior trends consultant at Mintel. I think a round of applause for the team. Fantastic time and insight today, which I'm sure our audience is going to find extremely helpful. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the CIM Marketing Podcast on your platform of choice. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear your feedback. CIM Marketing Podcast.